Many are calling it the new atheism. What are they saying and what do they believe? This is Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, and Christian apologist, Pat Zuckerman. I'm your co-host, Kevin Harris, and today you'll hear part one of our recent appearance on an atheist radio podcast show. Pat and I were invited on their broadcast to defend the Christian faith. And believe me, our atheist friends asked some very tough questions. This is a very important issue in our culture today. And we hope you'll be equipped to present and defend your faith in Christ more fully after today's program. And let me remind you that there are outstanding resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism on Pat's website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Quite an exciting adventure, Pat, when you and I had an opportunity to be on an atheist radio or podcast show streaming on the Internet that's uh, really been in the media quite a lot. Newsweek magazine has picked up on these guys. They were on ABC's Nightline the other night, L.A. Times, and so forth. And so this isn't just some isolated website somewhere. These guys have made a lot of headlines with something called the Blasphemy Challenge. Also, uh, they are supporters of a movie called The God Who Wasn't There that we've talked about on this show. And it's a, a video documentary that alleged Jesus never existed. The Blasphemy Challenge is a challenge for mostly young people are responding. It's a challenge to videotape yourself blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And uh, thus, uh, according to them, committing the unpardonable sin. And so we've had some correspondence with the guys, and they invited us to be on their show and to defend our faith in Christ. And so you and I had that opportunity to be on together. What are your thoughts on our interview with them? Well, it was a very difficult interview. It wasn't fair, and they weren't really being honest on a lot of points. First of all, there was five of them, Kevin, and just two of us, so that already put us at a disadvantage. Well, mostly because it's difficult to get a word in edgewise when there's right. that many people talking. So, and, and that was one of the difficulties. You would make a point, and then they would continue to interrupt, and as soon as you answered their question, they'd interrupt with another question, another question, another question. And though I believe that we show that their arguments to be not strong at all, and some to be just outright fallacious, I'm not sure we were ever, ever able, given the opportunity to finish our points and make a clear case. You know, that part was a little difficult for me. I, w I was hoping that they would give us the courtesy of finishing our points and making our points, but of course we didn't have that. Some other things I learned is that there are no convincing arguments against the historical reliability of the Gospels or the uniqueness of Christ and the resurrection, and that Christianity stands up to the challenges raised by the opponents of the cross. Second, that there is good evidence upon which our faith in Christ rests. Third, although the evidence for Christ may be compelling, as you'll witness these highlights of this debate, those who refuse to believe will not honestly weigh the evidence before them. And finally, in the end, I had to realize that it is our job to be prepared and present and defend the truth, but let God and the Holy Spirit deal in the lives of those individuals. And so we just pray and we just hope that the truths that were presented would strengthen the faith of Christians who are listening, but also hopefully would penetrate those who skeptics who are listening, that hopefully they were able to realize that, wait a minute, there is some compelling evidence and good reasons to believe and put your trust in Jesus Christ. These guys would consider themselves part of the new atheism. Now, the media has really coined that term, the new atheism, because there have been some best-selling books at the time of this recording that all deal with atheism. 
And the new atheism is characterized by being very aggressive, being almost evangelical, evangelistic in your atheism. And a lot of it uh, is because they think that uh, it's taboo to criticize religion. And they want to break that down and say, look, we must criticize religion because of 9-11 and because uh, we're not ever going to get anywhere uh, unless we criticize religion. Of course, they see all religion as false and that they're atheist. They did say one thing about their definition of atheism. Let's listen to this clip where they say that their view does not require faith. We get this a lot, that it requires faith to be an atheist. Why need faith to lack a belief? Do you guys realize that our brand of atheism is is merely disbelief, that we we don't claim to know for sure that no God exists, which is what I think that you would be referring to as the faith position? Pat, what about that? Does atheism require faith? Well, yes, it does. And I thought their attempt to redefine their atheism really didn't work. In fact... They ended up contradicting themselves. They tried to redefine themselves as soft atheists. In other words, they were saying that we lack belief or that there's not enough evidence to believe in God. Well, if you look at their website, that's not what they're promoting. They are promoting disbelief in God. They are promoting atheism, and they are asking young people all over to blaspheme God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, over 700 Teens have sent in videos of themselves blaspheming God and the Holy Spirit using some vulgar and sometimes crude language. And so these guys, are at, they have a belief, and they're asking people to buy into their belief. And so they do have beliefs. It's not that they lack belief. They have beliefs. And, of course, when you get to the bottom line of it, you know, it is a rejection of God. So whether you want to disguise it as soft atheism or hard atheist The bottom line is that an atheist rejects the idea that a God exists. And so their attempt to redefine atheism, to put themselves in a position to say, look, our position doesn't require faith, it's just a lack of belief. And what we want to do is we don't want to state our position because then we'd have to defend it. What we want to do is attack everyone else but not have to defend our position. But they definitely have a belief and they're definitely advocating their belief and asking others to join it. And it does take faith to be an atheist because the evidence out there points to the fact that we do live in a theistic universe and God has intervened in time and space, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. They also asked us our definition of faith, and this was our response. Define faith. Define faith for us, please. Yeah, faith is the assent or the trust that a proposition is true. Faith is the assent or the commitment or the trust that a given proposition is true. And There's also a second part to that definition now. Go ahead. It's uh, belief, belief in something without evidence. That is fideism. See, if, you know, that would be a fideistic view. Just like love has nuances. I, I love my dog. I love my wife. I love pizza. I think that you can, you, can, you can prove that by uh, evidences displayed in, in how you treat your dog or how you treat... Uh, I wish yeah. I had a, a quick way to replay the tape of you speaking a moment ago about the definition of atheism when you said that people want to put positive spin on the definitions of words. <laughs> and, and now we've got you here kind of rebranding faith as um, as being something that, you know, can be based on proof. Well, it's not let's a rebranding. Give, let's, give it a, let's, get, let's give it a free pass. We'll yeah, it, it's not, it's not a rebrand, but it's not a rebranding. It would just be, let's, let's tease out the nuances a little bit. Some oh, things require... So you're not rebranding, but we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Now, you'll notice there that uh, he said that there's a second part of the definition of faith, Pat, and he said that is the belief without any evidence. 
Right, Kevin, I thought you brought up a great point that that's not the biblical definition of faith. The biblical definition of faith is putting our trust based on reasonable evidence. So Christianity is not some blind leap in the dark, I just believe because I just believe, and there's no evidence behind it. No, Christianity is a reasonable faith. There is compelling and good reasons to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, in the end, the atheist and the Christian must take a step of faith. But our step of faith is based upon the evidence that we have, not just some kind of blind leap in the dark. And that's where they were incorrect. And I think they were caught a little off guard there. They asked you, Pat, uh, what is the evidence for Jesus outside of the Bible, outside of the New Testament? And we asked them, well, wait a minute, there's plenty of evidence uh, outside of the New Testament, but why are you penalizing the New Testament? Why are you penalizing the New Testament documents as historically reliable sources? And here was one of them's response. I just want to say because you can't use something to prove itself. So the Bible's the only thing right now making the assertion that Jesus existed and he was the Son of God and, you know, died for our sins and rose again and all of those things. That is the Bible. So you can't use that to prove it. That's circular reasoning. You need something outside of that to be able to prove it. So she accused us of circular reasoning, saying you can't quote the New Testament to prove the New Testament documents. Right. And I think, Kevin, you brought up a good point, and they eventually came around to agree with the point that you brought up. But when you have a historical document, you don't immediately dismiss it and say, well, we need other historical documents to prove this historical document. No, you do the standard test we do on all historical documents. You look at the internal evidence, the external evidence, and the manuscript or what we call the bibliographic evidence. We do that with all historical works. Now you've got the Gospels here, which claim to be a first-generation eyewitness account of the life of Jesus Christ. Well, you don't immediately dismiss it and say, you've got to dismiss the Gospels and you need proof outside of the Gospels to prove the Gospels. No, you've got to take a look at the Gospels and you have to take a look at those three lines of evidence, the internal evidence, external evidence, and the bibliographic evidence. And if the Gospels show themselves to be a very accurate historical work, then it's a line of evidence that you must consider. You just can't immediately dismiss it like that. And the internal and external and the bibliographic evidence, what it shows is that the Gospels are written very early, probably about 60 A.D. And we never got to make the point, I kept trying to make it, but we were never able to get there because we kept getting interrupted, that the fact that the Gospels are written about 60 A.D. blows the whole theory of mythicism apart. You know, and when he asked you, Pat, about evidence for Jesus the existence of Jesus and so on, outside of the New Testament. I would be curious as to what Pat feels is the best piece of evidence for the life of Jesus Christ outside of the Bible. You were perfectly willing to give him some examples, and you quoted some ancient historians uh, that were not in the New Testament, and uh, some Romans and some Jews and some Greek historians, and you also quoted the church fathers. Their response to that uh, was to get pretty argumentative, particularly Clement of Rome, and and then that led to some criticism of the Apostle Paul. Right, Kevin, you know, and one of the mistakes I made is I thought if I just give them a brief answer, we could get back to the real issue of the date of the Gospels. Because if you can establish that the Gospels are written well within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, that blows this whole mythicism apart. Because, first of all, the Gospels are written and circulating in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses who can verify these accounts as being true or false. Not only that, you've got the enemies of Christ who are still alive, who are trying to discredit Christianity. And when these Gospels come out, the, the enemies of Christ are still there. 
who can also discredit the Gospels. The Gospels would have never lasted had it been written in the first century. Not only that, historians know it takes about three generations for legends and myths to develop. And the whole premise of mythicism is that Christ is a myth. Well, if it's written in the first generation, within 20 to 30 years of the life of Christ, that's too short for myths to develop. So we never really got there, but they wanted to go down the line of the church fathers. And they were primarily, for their evidence, were primarily quoting one kind of evidence. And it was pretty much the, the argument from silence that Clement of Rome and the Apostle Paul do not mention specific events of the life of Christ. And that's pretty much the only kind of argument they were giving, the argument from silence. And they were saying, why doesn't Clement of Rome, writing in 90 A.D., quote Jesus or the Gospels, or why doesn't Paul... You mentioned one Clement, or Clement of Rome, okay, which he wrote too, one Clement and two Clement. Um, now, if you read Clement, uh, there are times when he speaks where he should have mentioned something about the life of Christ that he doesn't. For example, when he talks about jealousy, he goes on about jealousy and he says, uh, you know, uh, how it's so evil and wrong, and how we should aspire to be better Christians. However, he never talks to one event about the life of Christ that would, would be vital to this. You know, something, for example, like the jealousy of the Jews, the jealousy of the Pharisees, or the, you know, the, uh, or the Romans to the Jews, or anything like that that could be, could be plausible in that situation to talk about jealousy or to bring up a point about Christ or something that he said that was inspirational. He never mentions a word about him. And in fact, in, in his entire works, he seems oblivious to the fact of any of the Gospel accounts. First of okay. all, when Clement and Paul are writing, the Gospels exist, and they're not writing a, bi a biographical, historical biography of the life of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we shouldn't expect a lot of the details of the life of Christ to be mentioned over again, because they know that the Gospels exist, and they're not, their purpose is not to write a historical biography of the life of Christ. Uh, we already have the Gospels for that, and they know that, and they both quote the Gospels. So, Where? So, Huh? Where? Can you give me, uh, several can you give me a, a, a part where Paul quotes the Gospels, please? Yeah, in First um, Corinthians, I think it's 11, where he's talking about the uh, uh, the words that Christ said at the Last Supper. You know. Okay, but and he, he says, builds. He and says, whoa, whoa, hang on, hang on. Whoa, hold hang on, on. Hold on. No, he hang on. Well, we gave them a couple explanations that were perfectly reasonable, yet they didn't want to accept it. First of all, Clement and Paul are writing theological works and addressing pastoral issues. They're not writing biography. Right. Their purpose is not to write a historical biography of Christ, as we both mentioned. And so we shouldn't expect detailed aspects of the life of Christ to be in there. And then they gave another challenge. Well, why doesn't Clement or Paul quote Jesus? Well, Clement does quote Jesus Christ. If you look in chapter 13 of his work, he says here, being specifically mindful of the words of the Lord Jesus, which he spoke, teaching us meekness and long-suffering, for thus he spoke, Be merciful, that ye may obtain mercy. Forgive, that it may be forgiven to you. As ye do, so shall it be done unto you. As ye judge, so shall ye be judged. As ye are kind, so shall kindness be so shown to you. Wow. With what measure ye meet, with the same it shall be measured unto you. Well, that's quoting Jesus there in the Sermon of the Mount. And he you know, went on to say, well, where does Paul quote Jesus? Well, we said 1 Corinthians 11, we pointed that out to him. And also remember, Paul and Clement are building their theology presupposing a historical Jesus Christ. I mean, so, so Paul quotes, he quotes Jesus in 1 Corinthians 11, and he also quotes the Gospel of Luke, uh, something that you pointed out uh, to them in, in the book of 1 Timothy, he quotes um, for the Gospel of Luke, which quotes Jesus. Right. You know, and one of the clarifications that we were not able to make is that, you know, because we're being interrupted so often, 
uh, Paul's letters do indeed predate the Gospels, and so we shouldn't expect Paul to be continue, you know, having prolific quotes of the Gospels. A lot of his letters predate the Gospels. However, he does quote the words of Jesus, and there is a surprise, as you just mentioned, Kevin, in his later epistle, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. He indeed quotes the Gospel of Luke. And so there, they were really uh, on a faulty foundation here. And remember, Clement, the church fathers, and Paul, they're building their theology. You know, look at Philippians chapter 2, the whole doctrine of the Incarnation. They're building their entire theology on the fact that Christ was a historical person who lived a miraculous life, died, and rose from the dead. You know, these guys are trying really hard to prove that Jesus is not historical, that he's just a myth or that he never existed. And um, so we spent a lot of time on that in this particular interview with these guys. And that led to a lot of talk about the Gospel of Thomas. Gospel of Thomas is, is considered to be one of the, one of the very first uh, books of the sayings. It's almost, it's almost directly after Q, in fact. People, people place it right after Q. They claim that the Gospel of Thomas is first century, maybe very early and shouldn't have been left out of the canon and, and so forth. What was your response to that? There are few scholars who claim that the Gospel of Thomas is written as early as 50 A.D., and I think Rook in this debate was saying that the, Gospels, uh, uh, the Gospel of Thomas is written about 50 A.D. and that the New Testament writers get their ideas from the Gospel of Thomas. And, of course, the weight of the evidence totally goes against him for several reasons. I mean, the... The one that I was able to mention there was Marcion's canon. You know, Marcion wrote the heretical canon. He included the Gospel of Luke and several of Paul's epistles. Now, Marcion had many Gnostic beliefs, and he even rewrote many of those books to accommodate his Gnostic beliefs. Well, the Gospel of Thomas is clearly a Gnostic work, and Marcion putting, you know, writing his canon in 140 AD doesn't quote the Gospel of Thomas, nor does he include it in his New Testament canon, which would have been absolutely advantageous, and he does not. Why? Because that gospel is not around. Not only that, the Gospel of Thomas quotes many New Testament books, including 1 John and the book of Revelation. Therefore, we're arguing a late 2nd century date because he has access to so many New Testament books. Early 1st century writers wouldn't have had access to those many New Testament books. And also, you know, a point that I wasn't able to make is that where the Gospel of Thomas deviates from the Greek New Testament, you can see that he's depending on a Syriac translation of the New Testament, the Diatessaron by Tatian. And his translation, or the Gospel of Thomas, is, is in conformity to the Diatessaron. The Diatessaron is not completed till 170 AD. So all those arguments go against the Gospel of Thomas. And also, a point that we brought up, Kevin, is that this is a Gnostic work. The refashioning of Jesus into a Gnostic Jesus occurs in the late 2nd century as the Gnostics see the popularity of Christianity developing, and so they try to get on the Christian wave and try to refashion Jesus in their image. And if you read verse 114 of the Gospel of Thomas, the apostles are arguing and telling Jesus, make Mary leave us, for women don't deserve eternal life. And Jesus says, well, I'll make her into a man, so every woman that makes herself into a man can, have, can enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, this whole idea of the impurity of women, that's clearly Gnostic, as you articulated there. And it goes against what the New Testament teaches. And so, really, the Gospel of Thomas doesn't present any historical value. It's a late 2nd century date. So, the argument of trying to say that these predate the Gospels and the New Testament writers got their ideas from the Gospel of Thomas really is not a good argument. And I think they knew it uh, once uh, we went through just a few of the facts there. I noticed that uh, our atheist friends in uh, trying to rebut us and refute us, 
quoted the New Testament when it was convenient for them and their point, and then denied it when it wasn't convenient for them. In other words, they were trying to deny the historical reliability of the New Testament, but they kept going to the New Testament and giving historical facts from the New Testament. In other words, they would say, well, you know, Peter and Paul didn't get along very well at one point. How do they know that? Well, they're quoting the New Testament. And so they're saying the historical fact that Peter and Paul had kind of a falling out, they get that from the historical reliability of the New Testament. Another thing they brought up, and anyone who's been in the ministry of apologetics and, uh, and gone out on a limb and defended your faith in Christ, you'll have biblical so-called contradictions thrown at you from time to time. And one that we run into a lot is in Luke chapter 2. And what is that problem, Pat? Yes, you know, Kevin, uh, the context in which it came up once again is, is we got interrupted. And I just gave some quick answers. And then, you know, we got interrupted from finishing our point as they went on this trail of Quirinius. Now, the way it came up was simply this. I said, the Gospels have shown to be a very accurate historical work. And they kept saying, well, where? Show us, show us, you know. And I said, you know, we've got historical works. We've got uh, writings of the church fathers. And, and we've got archaeology. And they kept in and said, where, where? Give us some archaeology. Give us some archaeology. So I just really rattled off some uh, archaeological discoveries real, real quickly, as you heard during the debate there. Well, it just so happens that they went after the Quirinius one, and we ended up going down that trail, unfortunately. Now, the problem is that many historians have Quirinius being governor of Syria in about 6 AD, and that would be too late for him to offer the census because the census had to have been given before the birth of Christ so that Joseph and Mary would have to go back to Bethlehem. The fact that he became a governor 6 AD, they said, well, it's too late for him to be the governor. Now, there are several explanations of that, and they're very plausible explanations. First, one explanation is that Quintilius Varus was governor of Syria from about 7 BC to 4 BC, some historians think. Now, Varus was not a very good military leader. In fact, uh, history, you know, historical records show that he lost three legions of soldiers there in the forests of Germany. So he was not a very competent leader. And so Augustus, knowing that Varus is not a very good leader, needs someone he can trust to carry out this census here in this volatile region of Palestine. And so who does he call on? Well, one of his most trusted generals here, Quirinius. And so Quirinius carries out the census and later is appointed governor. That's one explanation. Another explanation, and this is the one I kind of favor, that Quirinius was governor, and you mentioned this very well during the debate, Kevin, that Quirinius was governor of Syria on two separate occasions, once from about 12 or 12 BC, about that time, and later at about 6 AD. How do we know that? Well, there was a Latin inscription discovered in 1764, and interpreting this inscription here refers to Quirinius is having served as governor of Syria on these two separate occasions. So it's one of those two um, scenarios which are very plausible scenarios. So here. the problem is pretty much cleared up when we realize that Quirinius could have been uh, governor twice or could have been in some kind of govern, governing role because the Greek word there allows for minister. So he could have been in a, a govern, uh, gubernatorial role or a ministerial role for the government during that census, and Luke refers right. to that. And you gave a third explanation that the Greek word there in Luke 2.2 2 is protos, which can be translated before. So he's saying before Quirinius 
uh, was governor, you know, this census took place. So those are three plausible explanations. I like explanation number two. Just go and, and look at any reputable commentary, and there are plausible explanations as to the historical fact of this census and uh, information about Quirinius. This is not an irreconcilable contradiction, and they were trying to claim that it was. Right, and one of the points that I was trying to make is that there is no you know, archaeological discovery that contradicts any major facet of the gospel accounts. A lot of the discrepancies we have are on the smaller, minor issues, and they are not irreconcilable. And in fact, the pattern of archaeological discovery shows is that with the advance and the more discoveries we make in the field of archaeology, especially in Israel, archaeology tends to clarify and confirm the biblical accounts. You know, there was so much to address and so many questions flying out all over the place. And one of the things they brought up when you quoted First Timothy, Rook Hawkins said, uh, Paul didn't even write First Timothy. First thing you pointed out to him was, well, that's a minority view. Most biblical scholars are not going to hold that. They're going to hold that First Timothy is, in fact, Pauline, that it was written by Paul. Right, and it's quoted by all the church fathers very early. So uh, there's good historical data that is a good first century work. Therefore, it's very likely written by the Apostle Paul, for whom it is named. Also, there really are no good arguments against Pauline authorship. I mean, there's... It just flows. I mean, it's, it's so, it seems so obviously from Paul. Right. Well, I hope you've heard the importance of today's program. This atheist group has received extensive media coverage, and Pat Zuckerin is on the front lines engaging those who work to convince people that the claims of Christ are false. Keep Pat speaking out, countering the claims of atheism by supporting Evidence and Answers with your prayers and financial gifts. Your prayer and giving helps to keep Pat on the air. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and click on Make a Donation and browse the multitude of professional resources available there. That's evidenceandanswers.org, evidenceandanswers.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.